Buongiorno e benvenuti a Battle Royale, dove giudicheremo tutti i re e imperatori di Francia, da Clodoveo a Napoleone III. <laughs> God, God, that is it. Today? There we go. You think you'd get me to do the intro in Italian, considering I did Italian for four years? You don't do it in Italian, I just thought it would be a fun thing. So, mi chiamo Ben Clark. <laughs> And I'm Eliza Summers. And uh, we're starting off in Italy this episode. We're in Italy already. And we're going to see if we can get out. <laughs> alive. It's like an escape get room, alive. but with more pizza. Um. <laughs> she. Sorry, I mean delicious. So used to saying Is that yum in Japanese. Nice. Yeah. So used to saying it. Yeah. Two two countries with, the, with probably the best food in the world: Japan and Italy. Yes. Um. And Japanese love Ital- Italian food too. So. I assume there's a there's an alliance there to to keep out yeah. all the countries with bad cuisine. Um, yeah. <clears throat> also, pasta and noodles—they're the same thing, you know. You might offend a lot of people with that statement. <laughs> uh, it's the same word in French, um, the word pasta and noodles. They call them, I think they call it the same thing. Listeners, don't correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I won't learn. Well, you can. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> All right, so we are doing Fend part two. French. We're doing part two of yes. Charles VIII. We're offending all the French. We're offending all the Italians this episode as well. Um, just... By just probably getting a lot of things wrong. But, you know, it's fun and yeah. we do it anyway. We don't have to be professionals. Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> so speaking of professional, Eliza, would you like to do a very professional recap of what happened? What has happened in Charles VIII's life so far? Okay. So Charles, like, got married and, like, you know, to Anne of Brittany, who's, like, a strong, independent woman, from what I glimpsed in the one, two sentences we talked about her. Yeah. Then (laughs) he was like, I'm bored of this life. Like, France is all, like, peaceful. It's like, "Mm, you know what? Let's go to Italy and claim Naples because, you know, I have a legitimate... um, you know, reason to be in charge to claim yeah. you forgot the word. He called like. dibs. And then, yeah, and then he's like, and then he's like, okay, mass this huge giant army, and he's like, la la la, skip over the Alps. And as he's going through, everyone's kind of like, they see him, they look behind him, they see his mass army, and they're like, oh, you just go on through. And he's like, <laughs> oh, smooth sailing. And he's like, marching his way through, and he gets to Rome. And the Pope's like, oh crap, uh, um, you know what? We totally support your claim. You just go on ahead. Go on and go to Naples. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're a good old Pope, aren't you? And he's like, see you later on the way back. I hope it's still the same. We have a great relationship. Let's keep going. And he's like, la, 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 la. Last given the jump. A bit of looting here. A bit of grabbing there. I've arrived at Naples and they're like, ah, here you go. You don't want it anymore. Goodbye. And they run away. Two. Two people run away, two rulers run away. Yeah. One even goes, I'm going to be a bloody priest or monk or whatever. Yeah. And then 
Charles like, woo, that was easy. Now let's head on back home. I'm a bit tired from that. Yeah. And he's like, you know what, I'll leave half the army here and we'll head on back. But as he's heading back, he's met by the legion of... Holy Legion the or Holy something. League. Whatever it's called. Yeah. Holy League. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect. and that's where we left off. That's where we left off. And that's one of the best recaps I've ever done in my life. The Holy League, it's often also called the League of Venice. Um, because, uh, first Venice of all, it's, it's remarkable that, that Venice actually takes part after being neutral for ages. But also Venice provides most of the troops. Venice is like the richest republic in Italy. Why did Venice join this? Because they're like, you know, we don't want France to wreck everything, but, basically. But France isn't even looking at Venice. Well, uh, it's... It, it is very complicated. Uh, basically, so, so um, <laughs> uh, uh, Beatrice Deste, she's kind of behind this. Yeah. Um, so she's uh, like the clever Duchess of Milan who is yeah. a, a brilliant like Renaissance woman. She's very friendly, very chummy with Charles on his way into Italy. But now seeing him coming back, seeing him like make so. friends with Trivulzio, the the Milanese exile who wants his land back. Also with the Duke she of Orleans starting to he uh, the Duke of Orleans Outstays is, is back north and he's like he's starting to harass oh. um, Milanese lands. He defeats Milan at Novara and then he and then he actually occupies Milan. Yeah. So oh. so Beatrice is cooped up with her family. They're barricaded in the great fortress of La Rocca. And uh, um, she's like, we need help. Uh, so she goes to yeah. Venice and she negotiates oh, wow. with them and she manages to to get uh, a great deal. And uh, yeah, it's basically her. She just convinces them, basically. That's a very oversimplified, very oversimplified version of what happens. But basically, let's just give Beatrice the credit for that. Um, so between yeah. Beatrice and the Pope, they're convincing all the Italians to kind of unite together, band together against this common threat. Um, and you know it's considered to be within all their interests because Charles just conquered they Naples. Don't look but, weak as well. but will he stop there? You know that sort of thing. Yeah. Also, Naples because it's in that southern Italy bit because it's surrounded by the sea. It w- it also has the potential to threaten Venice's like trade sea trade. Uh... So I think that's part of why Venice joins as well. Yeah. So Venice is kind of joining because they're like long term. This probably isn't a good thing for us. So. I'm just going to nip yeah. this in the bud. Venice also has a bunch of skilled mercenary cavalry from Albania called the Stradiotti. And they're mm. very swift, very um, deadly cavalry. Mm. There's always a group of skilled cavalry that come in from the east. Um, and this time it happens to be the Albanians. <laughs> Not only that, but the League has also given troops and financial support from Isabella and Ferdinand in Spain. And mm. also from the Habsburgs as well. They're kind of like putting a bit of money into the pot to help Italy <laughs> unite together and face this French threat. So the, so the time that Charles has been enjoying himself in Naples, the rest of Italy to the north has been, been like, has been like, quick, <laughs> while he's gone, <laughs> while the cat's away. That's Yeah. The mice will play. Exactly. So one of the few parts of Italy to defy the Holy League was Florence yeah. under Savonarola, oh. the crazy monk. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because, by the way, um, while Charles' descent through Italy was mostly peaceful, he did, like, start a revolution that completely destroyed the Medici family. 
True. <laughs> Forgot about that bit. But the Ronarola, for his defiance, he ends up getting later excommunicated, imprisoned, and hanged by Pope Alexander about yeah. two years after this. Katerina Sforza as well is kind of later persecuted for having supported the French. Yeah. But for now, with his smaller force, Charles was able to move at a pace back through Italy, through, mostly through allied lands along the coast. Yeah. But his allies, they were fickle at best. And though they allowed Charles to pass through their lands, they could not provide his army with any reinforcements. Charles yeah. just has to hope that he gets back over the River Po, uh, far to the north, uh, where he can link yeah. up with Orleans, who's got his army up in Asti. And yeah. at this point, Orleans has gathered his reinforcements in Piedmont, which is basically almost oh, all the okay. way up to Savoy. So it's quite far. Charles is yeah. quite far. Yeah. But, he, but because he's got a smaller force, he can at least move quickly. Yeah, true, um, true. Although he is somewhat hampered by the massive baggage train of, of loot that he's carrying. <laughs> with but as Charles approached the River Taro, just south of the Po, he found his way barred by Francesco Gonzaga, Marquess of oh. Mantua, who had behind him a huge Ooh. coalition of Holy League forces. Um, so as well as the elite light cavalry from Albania, the Stradiotti, who have also yes. been picking off French scouts riding ahead of the army. Gonzaga has 20,000 men, mostly Venetians. How many does Charles have now? 10,000. It's about oh. half the amount, yeah. With the smaller force, however, Charles is able to kind of slip across the river before oh. the Italians can act. Yeah, they're like further down the river and they kind of slip, slip across. Uh. And this catches Gonzaga off guard. Oh God, he was being so embarrassed. Yeah. They were literally, like, in the middle of negotiations. They, like, negotiated on the battlefield first, and they were, like, going to line up their troops. Gonzaga's heading back to camp, and then he turns around again. The French have just left. And they're already on the other side. They're already on the other side. He's like, God damn it. Yeah. So, so Gonzaga's, like, after them. And as we have seen time and time again, bigger army doesn't mean automatic win. Yeah, true. So Gonzaga's army not only has been caught off guard by French trickery, but it's also less unified. Yeah, true. He so had troops different. from, yeah, troops and commanders from All disparate regions. geographic regions. All fighting for their own interests. Yeah. Italy is, of course, a very divided place at this time. And he had to share a command with his overly cautious uncle, Rodolfo Gonzaga. So Rodolfo oh. is kind of like Francesco's babysitter, and Francesco is not a fan. Can't blame him. From across the river, Charles, realizing yeah. he couldn't outrun the swift Stradiotti, decided to turn yeah. his forces back to face the river, and just oh. to, to sort of try to fend off the oncoming charge. And this is where Ooh. the Swiss pikemen and the French artillery start to work their wonders. Oh. Because while he did leave all of the, uh, most of the forces, well, half the forces back in Naples, Charles at least brought with him all of his artillery. Because he oh, loves his nice. cannons, does Charles. Yeah. So as the Italians struggle across the mud muddy river, which has been like swelled up by a high tide and lots of rainfall, yeah. they are bombarded by cannonballs. Boom, 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 boom. Spraying mud and blood everywhere while the Italians are trying to cross oh. the river. And then meanwhile, the Swiss pikes manage to keep the Italians at a distance as they try to come charging up the hill. So the result is an uh, astonishing three to four thousand casualties for the Italians, um, including Rodolfo Gonzaga, the cautious uncle. Oh, that must have been a relief. He's sort of like, I'm done being cautious. He charges into the pikes and he gets skewered. And only one to two hundred casualties for the French. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's a good victory. Unfortunately for Charles, though, it's not entirely a victory because in his haste to cross the river... He gets his, captured. No, no. His baggage train got captured. <gasps> his baggage oh, train no! was lagging behind. So oh, the loot! The Italians capture all of the loot. Not some of the loot. Mm-hmm. All of the loot. All of the... Yeah. No! Yeah. So... What a waste. It was a big sacrifice, but, you know, Charles is like... It's worth it. Life need, is more important. Need to get home. Yeah. My life, the life of my troops, more important. And uh, for this reason, both King Charles and Francesco Gonzaga both declared victory at the this battle, which is called the Battle of Fornovo, after the nearby town of Fornovo. I'd um, still say French won. I would still say France won because they killed way more people and yeah. they got back home safely, which is was that was the goal. So yeah. Charles is like shaking his fist at the Italians. He's like, I'll be back for my loot. <laughs> and before he's even home, he's already planning a second invasion of Italy. Oh, does that yeah. actually happen though? Well, we'll see. So meanwhile, uh, the French conquest of Milan is short-lived as well. Uh, both Charles and yeah. his cousin, the Duke of Orléans, are forced to retreat entirely from Italy. Meanwhile, down in Naples, Ferrante II the exiled king. He's back. Well, he's, his exile is very brief. When he leaves, he says, I will be back in 15 days. Um, I don't think it's oh, quite wow. 15 days. I think it's a bit longer than that. But he does come back months. quite quickly. And this time he's got an army from Aragon at his back. Ooh. So he get, returns from exile with these Spanish reinforcements. And because he's popular among the people of Naples, who feel very yeah. abused by their French occupiers, uh, Ferrante is able they to welcome. defeat and expel... Gilbert, uh, the guy that Charles left in charge. What so, a useless war. Yeah, so Gilbert is forced to retreat to France with his tail between his legs. So yeah, useless war. In the end, there's no winner in this war. Everyone loses, basically. Um, France loses everything it gains, including the goodwill will that they'd had with the Italian people at the start of the war, who for mm. generations the Italians will continue to accuse the French of inviting war and upheaval into their lands, even as far into the future as Mussolini. Oh, wow. He's sort of raging about, like, what the French did to their country in this period and, like, how they can never let it happen again. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. And that was part of his whole, like, unification of Italy kind of uh, idea. Oh. Yeah, so Italy's, you know, in chaos. And uh, in addition, the war was met with outrage from France's other neighbours, of course. So at this point... Now that there's been a big marriage alliance with one of Castile to Philip von Habsburg, Mm -hmm. as well as the marriage alliance between Catherine of Aragon to Arthur, Prince of Wales, which has also happened by Mm -hmm. this point, with all of that happening, England, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire are now united in a triple alliance against France. It's not looking good. Yeah. And this is part of Charles' urgency to return home and re- reestablish himself in France. He's got to sort this diplomatic situation out. Yeah, he does. And to his credit, he does prevent war from breaking out. He manages to true, true. Stable, stabilize things by getting back to France and reasserting authority here. Nice. But this is the reason that his second Italian expedition as we see, maybe gets Didn't... delayed a little bit. Meanwhile, however, Charles is able to return to the, the comforts and pleasures of his favourite chateau at Amboise, nice. while his ever-discontent wife, Anne of Brittany, stays a few hundred metres away in her mini-chateau. <laughs> Had she been ruling for him? 
No. Or, uh, his sister was. His, his sister, sister was, was ruling. Wasn't. Anne was not trusted yeah. to rule. She was also pregnant oh, yeah. when Charles left. So she was in confinement. Oh, okay. Temporarily, the court had actually moved down to Bourbon. Uh, to oh, yeah. I Charles' forgot sister that I was the Duchess of Bourbon. So listen to Anne of France's episode to learn more about that. But yeah, Anne, even though she and Charles are necessarily, they're, they're on very iffy terms. Loose. She is a fertile myrtle, though. So the couple yeah. had three children in the three years before the Italian campaign. Oh, wow, one per year. Yeah, however, all of these children were doomed to die in infancy. Uh, the longest to live was Charles Orlando, the little Dauphin, um, who yeah. sadly dies of smallpox as a, tu- uh, as a toddler oh. a few months after the king returns from Italy. Oh. He actually has a little marble tomb with him and one of his brothers oh. in the Cathedral oh. of Tours, uh, which I managed to see when I was there. Uh, and that wasn't destroyed. No, it's there. Yeah, it's still there today. That wasn't destroyed in the Revolution. I guess even they felt like they shouldn't even destroy a, a child's tomb, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, the thing yeah, is, is and we might get this to this in Anne of Brittany's episode, but Anne of Brittany is always popular, no matter what the political situation oh. is in, in France. So we'll get to that in, in her nice. episode. But yeah, it's remarkable that it's surviving Tours, because not only do we have the revolution, but also Tours is heavily wars. bombed by the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. But the cathedral is still there. So by that point, when Charles Orlando dies, Anne had managed to conceive again. So she gave birth to a new Dauphin in 1496. He lived for a month. She then gave birth to another Dauphin. He lived for a couple of hours. These are once again in quick succession. But, uh, you know, Charles, he didn't let these misfortunes get in in the way of a good time. Like his father, he was an avid hunter. He's he's bringing back chivalry as well, so he's so he's fond of jousting as well. Jousting is starting to become a big sport, yeah. and in a return to uh, a cla- a more classic French sport, uh, still popular today, he's a big f- uh, fan tennis? of the jeu de pomme tennis. Yeah, do you remember Eliza? What happened? To a-, a big tennis fan, Louis X. What? Remember he Died? had a sip of water for a game, and then he. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Charles VIII is likewise very excited by tennis. That doesn't lead to his downfall, does it? And he was so excited to attend a game at Amboise uh, one afternoon, uh, Saturday oh, the God. 7th of April 1498, to be precise. Oh, no! That, <laughs> you know, whenever I mention an exact date, <laughs> something about is about to happen. So he was so excited yeah. to attend this, this ball game that he hits his head on a lintel at the end of a dimly lit corridor. Oh! It's the end of this corridor. There's a low doorway and hits his head. Again! <laughs> yeah, so this is the second time this has happened to a French king. <laughs> the other oh, thing. Oh, this is bad lintels! Well, at least he didn't do what Louis III did and r- try to ride through on a, a horse. horse. <laughs> Still, he dies. But yeah, there's a loud thwack that must have made everyone around him sort of wince and do one of those. Like sharp inhales, but yeah. Charles, he's not dead. He he recomposed oh. himself. He said he was fine. He went on his merry way. Then he, he drops dead later. He watched his whole like... tennis game. He strolled back to the chateau, chatting with his friends oh. without any complaint. And then about an hour later, according to the account, he dropped of dead. Philippe de Comines quote: "In the middle of a sentence, the king collapsed and remained unresponsive until eleven o'clock at night. So he's still." <gasps> alive he's Clean just gone a bit he's just gone a little bit comatose uh, so, so the king a little. Was, <laughs> just a little bit 
So the king's attendants and doctors are afraid to move him, so they get they bring through a mattress to put under him in the hallway, which is just outside the queen's apartments. So the queen comes out, she's like, what the hell has happened? What the hell? And they're like, <laughs> he's collapsed. And she's like, really? Um, so Anne is there with him for the whole ordeal, and Camine continues, oh. quote, three times the king spoke to the queen, but she did not understand him. So he's in... He's insensible. And anyone who wanted to see him could go into the gallery and find him lying on a poor mattress, which he never left until he gave up his soul. This was at nine o'clock the next morning. So he departed from this world, so powerful and so great a king, in such a miserable place. How old was he? Charles was just 27 years old when he died. Oh God, he's my age nearly. Yeah. Ah! So like our friend Agnes Sorel, he's now part of the 27 Club. Both died at 27. Oh God. Don't um, like this. By the way, I'm 27. I don't want to be 27. It's a cursed <laughs> age. Well, I'm only 27 for another two weeks, so I hope I make it. <laughs> I've got a whole year about to come up. Yeah. Ah! Just just watch out for those um, cracks on the pavement. Lintels. Uh, don't walk under any... Um... Yeah, don't walk into any lintels. I was going to say don't walk under any ladders. Japanese doors are so small sometimes. <laughs> just don't go. Just don't go at it with a run. So Charles's cause of death is generally, of course, assumed to have been cranial trauma. There's one writer who says that the king also ate an orange that day, so the orange must have been. Oh, it's the orange's fault. <laughs> it's the orange's fault. There's blasted oranges killing people every day. He brought back a bunch of oranges from Italy and planted a lovely garden of oranges at Amboise. And, and they uh, killed him. All these French people were suspicious of this new fruit and they were like, oh, that must have killed the king. But anyway, but, but no, it was... Blasted it was, oranges. It was a cranial trauma. And Don't try and cover up for the oranges, Ven. We all know whose fault it was. <laughs> it's the dust of the orange. There, there is a science review article that talks about this death and is like, yeah, this does happen where like you might have a head trauma that just doesn't affect you for like an hour and then yeah well there was like i can't remember what actor i was reading about saying other but there's some actor who died and they like they'd fallen and hit their head and they seemed fine at the time yeah and then they died later that day so yes yeah. and this is why like you have to be so careful about concussions because like if that person falls unconscious yeah. like they'll might never wake up and that's what happened to yeah. to charles poor old charles yeah so the king is dead Long live the king. Oh no. But who's the king? Who will be king? Yeah. So Charles VIII is the first king in the House of Valois to die without a son. Fun fact. Oh. Yeah. I've had a son every single time. It's not a but good no fact. son this time. Uh, not even any brothers. Yeah. So Charles's final child had been a girl uh, born about a month before his death, who was, of course, named Anne. And Anne was born yeah. on the 20th of March and died on the 21st of March. Aww. Yeah, so that leaves Charles VIII and Anna Brittany with no surviving children at all. Wow. Now at this point, there are rumours that Charles's sister, Madame Legrand, will seize the throne herself and become the first woman to be Queen Regnant of France. Oh, I wish. I wish, yeah. These proved to just be rumours. I didn't mention this in Anne's episode because I didn't want to... Get my hopes. I didn't want to spoil Charles' death. But yeah, uh, Anne of France, Madame Legrand, was keen to avoid another civil war and keep her husband's family, the Bourbons, in royal favour. So Madame Legrand yeah. is said bends the knee to her and Charles' cousin, 
the Duke of Orleans. Oh, yeah. Regent Fighter. Yeah, he's been regarded as the heir the whole time. He's the senior most male in the House of Valois. He's experienced, his, he's in his late 30s at this point, and he thus becomes King Louis the Twelfth. Oh. Yeah. So guess what, Eliza? Mm-hmm. We're going to be going back over all the history we just covered, but from Orleans' perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yay. <laughs> but before that, we're also going to cover things from Anne of Brittany's perspective. So that's going to be interesting. Yay! Because she has a whole second part of her life, which we're going to get into as well. And it, it takes a very mm-hmm. interesting turn. So get ready for some extremely messy family drama that's about to... Nice. Uh, uh, next time. Yeah. The French royal family is about to become even more like a soap opera than it was during the Hundred Years' War. So get ready for that. Sometimes. Yeah, and Anna Brittany's at the centre of all of it, so she needs an episode, basically. But back to Charles VIII. Charles VIII has the unique honour of being the only French king we know to have died in the same place he was born. Oh! He was born at the Chateau of Amboise, and he died at the Chateau of Amboise. However, as you've mentioned, he's not the only French king to have died... From hitting his head on a doorframe. <laughs> yeah, aren't you impressed that I remembered though? I am impressed. There was another king yeah. who died like that. I mean, it was the only memorable thing about Louis the Third. So <laughs> Charles's heart was buried nearby at Clary Saint Andre, but in a return to tradition, the rest of his body was taken to the Basilica of Saint Denis, where he was laid to rest in a magnificent gilded tomb, which sadly hmm. doesn't exist because it was Good, me- yeah. it was melted down for Destroyed. parts in the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of art, we will now begin rating Charles VIII, and we'll start with his visual legacy yes. in Enchanté. Let's see how he does. Enchanté. So I'm going to send you a couple portraits. First, I will send you a portrait of him as a young man. I mean, he was always kind of a young man, but this is supposed to be sort of... A young, young man. Late teens, early 20s, I suppose. The painting itself is from the early 16th century, but it may be a, a copy of, of an older uh, painting but but there he is okay. there's charles got the strong nose mm-hmm. he's got loud the nice little shells yeah so his, he's um... he's he's wearing the same thing that his father was wearing around his neck it's the order yeah. of, the order of saint michael with its shell yeah. decorations it's got his funny little hat on it's not a crown but better than his father's okay this is a thing eliza uh that i have to say and i i know you criticize louis the 11th for not having a crown but um, from this point, no one's depicted with crowns. Crowns are out. Losers! Crowns are out. There will be kings of France depicted with like a crown next to them, or there'll be like a coronation painting showing them getting crowned. But kings <sighs> did not wear crowns as a fashion choice um, in this period. Um, I mean, the extent to which they even did that in the Middle Ages is debatable because... Um, Stills, unlike my crown. Yeah, crowns are nice, but a crown is like ceremonial purposes. Yeah, I know, and their bloody portrait is getting a cer- is a ceremonial portrait purpose. Yeah, but I I kind of like it better that this is how he looks day to day. It's a more accurate idea. But I think he looks very Wallow. he looks very Tudor. It's starting to look very Tudor. I know it, yeah. it does. Or late Valois, as we call it in France. <laughs> we don't call it Tudor, we call it late yeah. Valois. <laughs> but I do I do think the hats have progressed a bit since Louis XI. I think it's a it's 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 a better looking hat. Yeah. Um, bit more fitting. We're also starting to get the lower necklines for, for men's clothing. We will eventually 
ha- be having like full full collarbones for men. What? How scandalous! Yeah, but they're still they're still doing the sort of broad shoulder look, the the shoulder pad look. Maybe a bit less pronounced on this portrait, but it's you know you see it yeah. elsewhere. But yeah, it's very. If you've ever seen like portraits yeah. of like Richard the Third or like Henry the Seventh, yeah. they're very yeah, much yeah, emulating yeah. the same style, which comes yeah. from France. Uh. We've also got an illustration of what his tomb effigy looks like. It's maybe a bit more regalia heavy. Oh yeah, that's definitely more. He's got a crown next to him. He's leaning over oh. a prayer book. He's got angels yes. around him. He's covered in fleur de lis. Like this is what, and this was all gilded. This was all covered this in gold. Is, oh, this is what his tomb. That would have been like. amaze balls. I've also got another portrait of Charles, which is perhaps Yay. a little bit less flattering. Uh, but oh. it was painted closer to the time that he lived. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a coin portrait. That's like the portrait you decide, like, you know, someone when they have a coin or postage. Yeah, this is a side profile. It's a lot It's a lot more similar to... That is to, so weird. It's a lot more similar to Louis XI's portrait. He's also got these horrible whisk, wispy beard hairs as well. I do appreciate the collar, though, that giant collar of his clothes. I do like that, how different colour. So, yeah, Charles, um, as you may be able to imagine, Charles was never considered attractive, even by the weird beauty standards of the 15th century. People around him seem to have generally agreed uh, that, um, you know... He was ugly. He was good-natured, he was fun to spend time with, but he was not, like, a looker. And we have a very savage description from the a, a, a Venetian ambassador writing in 1492. Let's hear it. I do love a good savage. Okay, get ready. Roast. Uh, should yes, I do an Italian yes. accent? <laughs> Don't offend any Italian listeners. Okay. <laughs> I'll just do a posh accent, because he's posh. Alright, so this is the Venetian guy talking. His Majesty, the King of France, is 22 years old, small and poorly composed of the person, ugly of face, that has big and white eyes, and much more apt to see little than much. The aquiline nose, similarly large and thick. He also has big lips, which he continually keeps open, and some spasmodic hand movements, very ugly to see, and he is slow of speech. According to my opinion, which may be very well false, he is worth little, neither in terms of body nor intellect. Nonetheless, he is praised by all in Paris for his skill at tennis, hunting and jousting, in which exercises he spends much of his time. And that's it. A little compliment sandwich there. <laughs> With a big meaty insult any... in the middle. <laughs> I think that was mainly insult, insult, tiny compliment at the end. Well, he starts feeling like, you know, he's majestic and, and young. Ugly, ugly, small. ugly, stupid, slow, horrible. Uh, but, you know, he's good at sport. <laughs> they started off, off saying he's small. I think that. Oh, well, he starts off being like his majesty, the illustrious king of France, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes into how he's small and ugly and dumb yeah god but charles kind of makes up for it uh in other ways in in life he surrounded himself with lots of military pomp and pageantry uh unlike his father who's not really into that kind of thing yeah with the help of his wife and his sister he cultivated a more elegant intellectual court at amboise mm-hmm. the chateau d'amboise is considered the main lasting legacy of charles's reign which is exciting for me because I've actually been there and been inside and like nice. seen the lintel where he's supposed the to be. Lintel? Yes. <laughs> oh my god, the death lintel. I think we're not entirely sure which lintel the death lintel is, but I I saw a few lintels and some of them were quite low, so it's very understandable that if it was a bit dark, one you of them hit is your death. Head. Yeah, 
but uh, I encourage you, Eliza, to, to do a Google image search of the Chateau Lombard just to see all the angles. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And you can see it's a very effective fortress while also being lovely with its gardens and galleries and that sort of thing. Um, oh, nice. Uh, one thing that struck me is the amount you can see Anne of Brittany in the architecture. So her coat of arms oh. is everywhere. Her and Charles's joint coat of arms, which is basically the, the fleur-de-lis of France crossed with the the um, the ermine of, of Brittany, so the black and white spots oh. of, of, of Brittany. There are these pillars throughout the castle, which like yeah. they alternate between a pillar with fleur-de-lis all over it and a fleur uh, a pillar with ermine spots all over it. Mm. So while maybe their marriage wasn't ideal, like per- on a personal level, and and uh, Charles were good at this PR thing and yeah. creating this like joint image um, together at Amboise. But this is still what we call an early Renaissance court. It, it's quite humble compared yeah. to the extravagance we'll soon see with Francis I. And it hasn't yeah. quite moved over to the classical style yet. We're still in the Gothic style. Um, yeah. Although at this stage it is called the flamboyant Gothic style, which I love. <laughs> so I it's love very that. decorative, very flamboyant. extravagant. Yeah, lots of gold. So Charles's court is also embracing the kind of art and design that will characterize the Renaissance. Uh, while Amboise, it, it is built in that traditional Gothic style. It does, in, in terms of layout, it resembles an Italian yeah. palazzo a lot more than previous chateau. Oh. So he's bringing in this Italian influence, uh, including like artists, architects, sculptors, bring them over from Italy. Nice. Um, yeah. And uh, also we've got the links to the Netherlandish painters as well, who we saw in yeah. Anne of France's episode. Nice. So yeah, Charles, he's not physically attractive. He's not necessarily yeah. the wittiest guy. Yeah. But he's surrounding himself by this kind of like cultured yeah. court. He seemed to generally be liked. Like, yeah. He's got this kind of joie de vivre that we haven't seen in a king in a, in a while. And um, yeah. Above all, he was dedicated to chivalry. Chivalry is his number one thing. I can imagine him when he was a little kid, like, pretending to be a little knight with a little sword and stuff. He always wanted to be, like, gallant towards women. Oh, that's nice. I think because he was raised at this very female-dominated court, he yeah he um, like, was very good at talking to women and, and being a good listener as well. Good. So Beatrice Deste, good hubby. who was writing to her sister Isabella, she calls Charles a very well-domesticated man. <laughs> who uh, attended her on her and her ladies with quote as great a familiarity and affection that could be desired from a prince he wanted to see my ladies dance and then me and he took singular pleasure in it <laughs> so he's just a good time guy is is charles yeah. and this all becomes yeah. part of his image and this all becomes part of his epithet which is why i'm talking about it in enchanté uh, because charles became becomes known uh, as a good time guy charles the courteous Oh. Or more commonly, Charles the Affable. Oh. I love the word affable. That's nice. It's a great word. So he's Charles the Affable. That's nice yeah, his name. I do like, I think it's a nice little epithet. The great chronicler Philippe de Comines, I think, sums him up in a in a in a pretty savage but but kind of sweet way. So he writes of Charles uh, after his yeah. death, quote, There was never a king so feeble and unintelligent, but in all the world it was impossible to find a better creature than him. I wouldn't say he's that unintelligent. Well, people at the time sort of were sort of like, you know, he's not. Are they like just saying he's unintelligent because he's surrounded by women? Is that why? No, no, it's it's more because he's 
kind of he's slow of speech he's kind of clumsy he's kind of um there's nothing to do with the brain some people think he did have intellectual um an intellectual disability of some kind maybe from all the inbreeding is it's very easy to believe uh from from all the inbreeding he wasn't as bad as his other sister Jeanne, who was like literally disabled like she was um considered like yeah. deformed and we will get to her next episode because she's actually married to the new yeah, king louis the 12th yeah yeah so we'll see how that shakes out that. next episode um but yes he i think he probably maybe had some kind of like maybe learning disability or something but yeah he you know he tries and he yeah you know, ends up being all right and people like him People like spending time with them. And Charles' legacy lives on. Not only is Amboise one of the best surviving examples of architecture from his period, but he also looms large in the popular imagination because of how many important people he interacts with. Yeah, all the Italians still remembered him. Yeah. So he's in (laughs) The Borgias, the TV show, as you've mentioned. Um, There's also a a, a German show about uh, Maximilian von Habsburg, which he's in. And there's also a yeah. a Spanish TV series about Isabella of Castile, yes. which he's in. Yeah. So he's um, kind of he kind of touches all these important pe- people of the period, and that kind of makes him important, like by association, I guess. <laughs> so that is what I have for Enchante. Okay. I think it's looking better than Louis the the Eleventh. Maybe it doesn't have the same image of like because Louis the Eleventh was this great like villain, yeah. a fun villain. But he's got all the you know he's got the artistic patronage. He's got this splendor, this grand court. True. Obviously, his portraits maybe not terribly impressive, but you know, yeah. you can't you can't help ugly. There's no plastic surgery in this period, unfortunately. So <laughs> that was brutal. <laughs> Sorry, that was brutal. I think, I think you can't the, help ugly. I think the <gasps> Ven- I think the Venetian ambassador is running is rubbing off on me. Yeah. God, savage. That being said, the first portrait, which is going to be the portrait we're using, is not too bad. Yeah. Listeners will have to head to our website to see the more ugly portrait. (laughs) Really stabbing the knife into him, aren't you? Eliza, this is just what was written about him. Like, it's not not me saying he's ugly. It's all the chroniclers. I think I have, like, a little soft spot for him. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying I don't have a soft spot for him. I adore this man. Yeah, I, th- I think he, like, I'm like, oh. So his dad got a five, because, like, he maybe yeah. didn't have as much, like, pageantry and, like, interesting art and stuff like that. Um, but he did have this lasting legacy. Um, I feel like I, if I knew who he was, then I think that's a big point. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually pre-knew who he was before coming into this. Yeah, so I, I would that's... be I would be careful at this stage though to to leave room for future kings who are definitely way better known. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I want to give him the same as his father. I want to give him a five because I also think, and this is going to be a problem in the other categories as well, is a lot of the stuff is like we could equally give credit to others, either, either of the Anne's, <laughs> his sister Anne or his wife yeah. Anne, who are definitely bigger, like. Loom, loom larger than him in terms of being cultural patrons and they're like the main influence on the cultural innovations that are happening at court so it's like wouldn't necessarily yeah. give charles all the credit for all of the that's why i only give him the same as stuff. his father yeah i agree I, I totally agree with that score so that is a 10 cool. for enchanté okay moving on to on guard 
on guard. So at the start of Charles's reign, we have his victory in the Mad War and the conquest of Brittany, which is like, it is his victory, even though it's also Anne of France's yeah. victory. But yeah, it, we can probably give most of the credit to Anne and to generals like Georges de la Tremoille, who did kind of well in that war. Yeah. But Charles was present to witness many of the military operations and negotiations, um, mainly yeah. because the royal presence is usually has a positive effect on morale and stuff. Yeah. And Charles, despite being dismissed as a bit of a dunce by his by his father and by others, he ended up proving himself a good listener who, yes, let others take the lead all the time, but... Takes into advice. Yeah, was good at taking advice, was consistent with his loyalty to his sister, always rewarded his friends, never threw any mm-hmm. spanners into the works to kind of cause chaos. Yeah, I mean... Just reliable. You could argue that it, his Italian campaign is one giant spanner, but at least in this early part when it, the Regency is happening, when Charles is kind of growing up, because the Regency kind of continues until he's 21, but he's... By that point, he's quite active. Yeah. You know, he's not screwing anything up. <laughs> until yeah. uh, until Italy. <laughs> he doesn't screw anything up. Yeah. I would say he majorly screws up Italy. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to that. So, Charles... He is prone to naive romantic notions. Um, And his dream of a glorious crusade is ultimately what motivates him to try to conquer Naples. Um, So it's a, I would say, you know, the premise is maybe misguided. That being said, on the way there, he did amazingly well. To the point that the Neapolitan king abdicated and his his son ran away as soon as Charles got there. Um... But establishing a French administration there was just too difficult. Um, yeah, and in the end, Charles only narrowly got back home. With that kind of thing, if you want to have power in Naples, you've got to creep the power slowly from France over, take over Milan and all those to eventually get down to Naples because otherwise you're not going to be able to hold Naples if you've got this huge chunk that isn't on your side between you and Naples. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I do have depictions of the Battle of Fornovo, but because these depictions are produced in Italy, they depict it as a Gonzaga victory. Oh. So I didn't include them in Enchante. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, he's got this battle, which is like supposed to be the great big set piece battle of this war. It's the only major field battle that happens. Yeah. The, everything else is sieges or just sackings or you're just, just w- walking through. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's only a semi-victory because he loses the loot, which was the yeah. kind of one of the main things main that he thing. needed. <laughs> so this whole war, it's really, I mean, you can spin Ooh, it any way you want, but it's it's really one step forward, two steps back. Like it has, it ultimately has a negative effect on both France and Italy and just yeah. Europe in general. Like it yeah. caused a lot of tensions that weren't true, necessarily... True necessary and it has the opposite of the intended effect which was to, to unite everyone against the the turks who are doing better than ever <laughs> well it does unite everyone just not against the turks just not against the turks against charles also he came in with this financial prosperity from his father universal spider and his sister who i think we called the magpie because <laughs> she's hoarding all the wealth <laughs> Uh, did he spend it all? Well, he, well, he started with an overflowing treasury, so he doesn't, he doesn't manage to spend it all. But his excessive spending on the military and all the pageantry and everything, it does lead to a reintroduction of very harsh taxes. 
And this made his people resentful and uncooperative, especially after the failure of the Italian campaign, because they're all like, well, what was this for? Yeah, you just wasted our money. You did this for what? (laughs) That being said, Charles did hold things together by coming back to France, steadying the ship. Though it's not really saying much, considering he was only around for another three years. And, you know, who knows what would have happened long term. And then he kind of leaves most of the work for Louis XII to pick up the pieces. So ultimately, I would give Charles an A-plus for, like, interesting story. Yeah, Um, but... But in terms of success... Success, not so much. It's really, yeah, as I said, one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. Yeah, So what what do we want to give for En Garde? To his credit, he doesn't lose territory necessarily. At the beginning of his reign, France has the gain of Brittany... Uh, but then the loss of some of those eastern territories to the Habsburgs. But that kind of balances itself out. Yeah. Although Charles doesn't fully take Brittany because of Anne of Brittany's negotiating. She manages to kind of stay semi-independent. Yeah. He keeps things as they are, territory-wise. Yeah. He, that's not what he wants to do. He wants another kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> and he <laughs> does get it for like a hot minute. <laughs> like two true, months. True. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was, was not to be. And he was successful in the one little battle he had. Come on, he only lost 200 people. It was impressive. The, the tactics on display were impressive. Um, he did have Travolzio, like, like... the Milanese guy, helping him out Yeah, the, the, the battle yeah, but he, there. Yeah, he, but he employed that guy. He did employ that guy. It was a smart move to get Travolzio on, yeah. on your side. What are you thinking? There's a lot of good moments in the Italian but altogether, campaign. it's... There's a lot of moments where you're like, yes, you do that. But then there's other things yeah, that like kind of... Yeah, like, you get of that Pope. And then... Like, there's him retreating out of Florence because he's afraid of the angry mob is, like, a little bit pathetic. Remember that? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Forgot about that. But then again, I don't blame him. You did just see... They did just see what he... They did to the Medici, Mer- the so... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, the Medici didn't have this that. giant army... You know, he could he could have taken him. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, Florence. he didn't want to like waste his troops on Florence. You know, instead he wasted them on marching around and achieving nothing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, except for angering the Pope and uniting the rest of Christendom against him. Yeah, I think that's a big that's a big point against him. I I think unfortunately it, really is. It, it is like a a bit of a net negative overall. It's I really know, impressive. It's, really... It has a really good start. It's like really promising, but it's like just doesn't Overall, lead to anything, doesn't... anything good for either Charles or for France. So yeah, <sighs> it's hard. It is difficult. Yeah, but we have given people points even if they have failed in the end. Yeah, we have. It kind of reminds me yeah. of the last king to invade Italy, who was Charles the Bald. He fended off a lot of Vikings, and then he became emperor, so he tried to march into Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he he basically pooed himself to death and got in the barrel at the end. (laughs) Oh, yeah! He was Barrel King. Barrel King. (laughs) We should have stopped calling him Charles the Bald and start calling him Charles the Barrel King. But yeah, not to be confused with Charles the Bald... Of Burgundy. This is Charles the Bald. That's why we should call him Barrel King. We should call him Charles the Barrel King. Barrel Barrel Emperor. He's an emperor. Oh, yeah, the Barrel Emperor. Emperor of the Barrel. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, and he's still in that barrel to this day, <laughs> just stewing away, fermented, yeah, nice and fermented over the last thousand years. Oh God! Yeah. No, uh, so we're not serial killers, Benjamin. Uh, yeah, but he got. We gave him a seven because he had all this other good stuff with fending off Vikings that Charles uh, one now does not have. Yeah, no, Charles doesn't have. Does the not have the Vikings. Vikings. No, he has the the Bretons, who are. Also northern barbarians. <laughs> from the from the French perspective at least. Um but, I, but see all that Brittany stuff is like we kinda gave Anne of France credit for that. And also it's not yeah. fully it's not even fully taken over. It's like only kind of taken yeah. over. Yeah. I wanna give him like a point or two for a good old try. He's better than some of the useless do nothing kings. That's for yes, sure. Yes, absolutely. He gets import. He gets points for agency, points for enthusiasm, points for just yeah. going ahead and just doing what He's he like, wants. He gets that like participation trophy. He shows a lot of spirit, and that's what we look for in on guard. It's not just about success. That's what it's I also got about in school. I got a much... spirit award in school <laughs> <laughs> for showing school spirit. Oh my god, I'm him. Yeah, oh, and I'm at my, 27. At my Catholic primary school, I was given the Hope Award because of my positive attitude. <laughs> I got uh, this in high school. Yeah. When I was uh, 17. <laughs> did they give you like a little prize? Like, did you get like, I Because I got a candle which said Hope on it. <laughs> I got a pin. I got a badge to put I on my that. uniform that literally said Spirit on it. Love it. I I wish it had had the stallion on it. Spirit. Yeah, that would have been yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> good movie. Um, so what do we want to give for On Guard? Stop stalling, God, Eliza. I'm feeling so depressed. <laughs> I feel like I'm here in life. God, this is depressing. Okay, well, I think I want to give him like a four. I was kind of thinking a four as well. Like, yeah. because it's a net negative, it's, a- it's below five, but... He does everything yeah. else right. He's I better think. than the do nothings. Yeah. yeah. He's just got a little A for effort. A for effort, absolutely. So that is an eight for On Guard. Moving on to Voulez-vous. Voulez-vous? We've already been over the main negatives for Charles and Voulez-vous. Yeah. So failed invasion, harsh taxes. harsh taxes. But in other aspects of his reign, Charles has a lot going for him, uh, especially when it comes to okay. personal character. It's a big part of how we judge Voulez-vous. Yeah, people did seem to generally like him. He was very liked. He was called the Affable. This epithet was used in his time and he earned it. So he should definitely be, be mm. praised for making his court like a more comfortable, more welcoming place. Um, especially, especially for women. Yeah, especially for women, especially since his father, Louis XI, had been very much like a bit of a recluse. The opposite. He'd been extremely misogynistic. Yeah, he was the opposite. He declared that women had no place at his court, and uh, with the potential exception of his daughter Anne, um, Anne was apparently, quote, the least foolish of women, as there are no wise women. Um, Yeah, so charming, charming man was Louis XI. As well as Charles's upbringing, which was spent at the female-dominated Amboise, historians also credit Charles's Italian adventure with giving him a greater appreciation for women. So he's been hanging out with Beatrice Geste. She and her sister Isabella are probably the greatest female patrons of the Italian Renaissance. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, like they're hanging out with like Leonardo da Vinci before he's even uh, like big anywhere else. Like right. they're they're like ahead of the culture. They're basically. like the it girls. They're the it girls, yeah. Like they set the trends. 
So although, although we might consider Charles VIII to be very unlike his father, he did have some similarities. He inherited his father's curiosity, mm-hmm. uh, especially his interest in Italy. Uh, although one might say Charles took this interest a little too far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Charles was also the first French king to bring scholars to the French court who subscribed to a new philosophy called humanism. Okay. Are you familiar with humanism, Renaissance humanism, Eliza? No, not Renaissance. I've heard of it. You've definitely heard of a lot of people who subscribed to this way of thinking. Leonardo da Vinci was a humanist. Thomas More was a humanist. Various important people of the 16th century, uh, all humanists. humanists. So this is the idea that humanity should be able to improve itself through scientific innovations, that it should be self-reliant. Um, through like new philosophies and new social reforms, um, like it shouldn't be afraid to people shouldn't be afraid to think for themselves and think freely okay. and like ponder the mysteries of life. Like you shouldn't, even yeah. though you know God at the end of the day is the cause of everything. Like we shouldn't stop believing well, in Him. Well, God wants us to just to think, live to our potential. Like <laughs> that's cool. the idea. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's the driving force behind the Renaissance, this this humanist movement. A lot of it harkens okay. back to classical literature and philosophy, which is being yeah, sort of yeah. rediscovered and reinterpreted. Re, yeah. Yeah. So humanism is also aided by the printing press, which was, of course, invented nice. by the German craftsman Johannes German. Gutenberg. Yeah. It had been invented way back in 1440, so it's already been around for about 50 years. But it doesn't really nice. start to replace the traditional hand-copied manuscripts until Charles VIII's reign in the 1490s. And as well as manuscripts, it's able to produce cheaper sort of like pamphlets, more like short form literature that improves literacy throughout France and also makes it so that ideas spread more easily. This will obviously have very deadly consequences during the Protestant Reformation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're still about 20 years away from that. So it's like, that's, that's future problems. Um, uh, yeah, that's a, yeah. <laughs> and as well as this, we have an influx of new art, music, sculpture coming into France. I've already talked about the Dutch influences, the Italian influences. Yeah. So yeah, there are there are positive things happening in Charles's reign. Charles also yeah. shows an interest in geography. Um, oh. So the author Francois Rabelais talks about Charles sponsoring a climber to make. Uh, one of the earliest recorded technical mountain climbs of Mont Aiguille uh, in the Alps. So he's sponsoring early sort of rock climbing stuff. Um, Nice. Mountaineering. Yeah. And a lot of this interest in mountaineering comes from his military career and him like being very interested in the Alps. Southing the, yeah, (laughs) having to get through those Alps really would make interesting. He's just very interested in the Alps for some reason. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Rulers often are. Yeah. So while Charles is, is is sponsoring all this intellectual stuff, one can't neglect to mention the the massively upsetting effect he had on European politics, which yeah. with the start of the Italian wars triggers over a century of like war and upheaval. Uh, like it spreads even beyond the Italian wars, but it's a bit of a stretch to blame Charles for all of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. for like everything bad that happened in the 16th century it all goes back to charles but as the italians say but he certainly doesn't help yeah in addition you've also got new diseases becoming a real problem in italy at this time smallpox. we've got smallpox smallpox has been around but it's really re- rearing its ugly head in a big way moving into the 16th century um a lot of uh, rulers and royal family members of this time succumb to smallpox also syphilis has more recently become 
a problem. Oh. It's speculated that Charles VII, the, the, the last Charles we had, may have died of syphilis. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And it is possible that, that Charles VIII also had syphilis. Oh. So yeah, smallpox and syphilis, they're not as deadly as the Black Death, but they're certainly more... They're like, still a nuisance. They're more constantly circulating. Like, the Black Death is always, like, a short, sharp plague that then goes away for yeah. for decades and re-emerges later on. Yeah. But syphilis and smallpox are now just, like, facts of life. And they will be yeah. until, eventually, you know, condoms and vaccines yeah, get invented. So... And that syphilis thing okay. would seg- segue very very nicely into Ulala, but we have to rate him in, in Vulevu first. Mm, personally, I probably wouldn't want to live under him in the later half. But he has to put in harsh taxes in the first half of his reign. It's not too bad. Although mm. there was some animals. Yeah. But it's it's, oh, it's nice to be around him, though. Provided he's not giving you syphilis. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the thing is, like, things are improving in France. But it's not necessarily yes, him. Yes. Yeah, it's just, I think it was always going to happen. Yeah, you can't really necessarily blame him either for, like, the, the negatives, like, the disease stuff. Or the positives, which, like, even the tax stuff, it's like, the tax system in France just needs to get reformed because they constantly have these problems. Yeah. Um, And we will see Louis XII maybe start to deal with that. But Charles VIII just doesn't have the time. Like, he's he's not around for very long. And most, like, most of his time is spent trying to fight this war that he's not going to win. I do think I'd like to be friends with him, Charles. Yeah, me too. But that's maybe worth like three I'm points. <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking like but, a four again. I'll give him a four because I think we maybe bump him up a little bit because of the good Renaissance stuff, which happens under him. Yeah, it's just luck. Maybe it's not all him, but I think if he if he lived at a less pro- prosperous time for France, he would have been a train wreck. Yeah. But you know, now moving on to Ulala. <gasps> Ulala. Charles's whole Italian campaign can be considered one big scandal. Um, it was certainly considered that yeah. by the standards of the time. People were, sh- people were shocked by this thing that happened. It was not even the fact that it failed. It was more like the fact that like that suddenly there's this French army walking He had through the audacity. Nobody's, nobody's seen the light. Yeah, it's the audacity. Before new was coming. The bombastic audacity of it all. Everyone's like, so like, what? That they're just like, okay, go through. Go yeah. on through. And like, okay. he, he causes a revolution in Florence. Uh, like true, it, true. Like it has massive toppling this like amazing family. Yeah, the Borgias nearly are toast because of him. Um, yeah, he captures of, um the mistress. Captures yeah, Julia Farnese. Um, Julia Cesare Borgias his prisoner at one point. Um, yeah, yeah, that Turkish guy. And it? then when he gets to oh, also, by the way, uh, the background noise of this is like. The French just like having their way with Italy, basically. They're like, there's a lot of unfortunate massacres, raping, pillaging, that sort of thing. But yeah, so it's a mix in Italy. It's a real mix of like good times and horrible, very horrible, scary horrible times. times, which all kind of, I think, culminates together in a, a very scandalous campaign. So on his campaign in Italy, Charles found himself particularly enamored with Italian women. Um, as we've touched upon. <laughs> so, of course, uh, he meets Beatrice d'Este. He he also meets her sister, Isabella d'Este, and he falls madly okay. in love with her. Um, 
However, he never he never manages to see her again after their fir- their first meeting. But there are, are references to her in later things that he writes. Oh, so he's just besotted. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, the Deste sisters turn against the French. In fact, Isabella's mm-hmm. husband is none other than Francesco Gonzaga, the Marcus of Mantua, uh. the guy who led the anti-French coalition at Fornovo. So. Writers of the time often joke that Charles and his fellow lords' weakness for the women of Italy meant that all of the jealous husbands of Italy uh, basically joined together in a conspiracy against them, and that's the Holy League. <laughs> like, oh, all these Frenchmen are coming in and sleeping with our wives. Voltaire later wrote funny. about the expedition, quote, When the French stubbornly went to Italy, they stunningly gained Genoa, Naples, and Syphilis. And incidentally, syphilis, the French called it the Italian disease, and the Italians called it the French disease. Oh. So everyone's pointing a finger. No one knows who gave it to who. There are theories that because it becomes rampant after 1492, it may even be a disease that the Spanish brought from the Americas. Oh. But this is dubious because there are yeah, that is. suspected cases of syphilis before this. Um, it's only at this point that syphilis starts to be more like understood. Um, yeah. Also, there there's evidence of syphilis being found in Europe as far back as like Roman times. Like there are yeah. Um, there are corpses in Pompeii with evidence of syphilis. Damn. So it's been around. It's just not been as I guess it hasn't mutated in the way that it has uh, at this point to become a bit more viral than it was before. <laughs> but yeah, so Charles's progress through Italy. Another writer um, calls it a. a a procession of Bacchus, which is basically a euphemism <laughs> for an orgy. Yeah. And uh, Charles is said to have fathered countless unnamed illegitimate children throughout the land. Um, really? And the amount of yeah. camp followers that were traveling with his army made it seem like a whole city was following the King of France. <laughs> and he has several camp followers who were like his favorites and who would like, you know, entertain him uh, in the evenings. <laughs> And uh, when he went back to France, uh, the same Venetian ambassador who was savage to him before, he tells us that uh, back in France, Charles preferred the company of courtesans to his wife, um, especially after his Italian campaign, where he maybe um, uh, learned a bit more about the the pleasures of life. Um, Pleasures of the flesh. And by contrast to these Italian women, was considered uh, very cold and like, austere Duffy. even though she is she does have her own cultural you know flourishing yeah. but uh Anne's best years are actually ahead of her she nice. hasn't quite blossomed at this point but uh ne- nevertheless Charles and Anne they do their duty they seem to have yeah, been at least okay. attracted to each other physically uh yeah. Charles is said to have liked short women because he was short himself um, so Isabella d'Este and Anne of Brittany are both noted as having been quite short. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, he likes, he likes them on the short side. Um, and, uh, you know, they did their duty. Anne was pregnant for almost their entire marriage. Um, yeah. so it was six children in seven years. Wow. The only period she wasn't pregnant was like... When he was away? She had just gotten pregnant when he left. So by the oh, time yeah. he got back, she'd had the baby, like, just a couple months ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then, he's and like, then she okay. was back in the saddle again. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so that is what I have for Ulala. It's quite saucy. 
It's saucier than we've it had is. in a while. Yeah, for those courtesans. And I think the whole Italian campaign is just such a... Just a it's just an extravagant display of just, like, debauchery. A lot of this is probably really Chronicles is. exaggerating things, but, you know, yeah. it's... He's going Some... through Italy at, like, the height of the Renaissance. Like, he's enjoying it, and he's... True, true. He's being very hedonistic about it. Which is funny. It's kind of in line with the Borgias, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and he and he doesn't care about the Borgias and all of their corruption and everything. He's just like, well, yeah, you support like, me in Naples? I Fine. I don't care what you Have do. Have your mistress back. <laughs> true, true. He's like... You limit children, whatever. Yeah, it's like you do you, just support me, and there'll be no problem. So, what do we want to give for Ulala? It's definitely up high because, like, you know, okay, like he literally caused a whole like rebellion in Florence, as we said. So it's like two points at least, toppling over the mm. de Medici's. Um, he literally unified multiple countries against him, which is pretty <laughs> scandalous. Like, come on, literally, like. It's not just like one enemy, it's literally multiple enemies, like they're all surround him. And he's he's literally got the whole of Christendom against him, which is pretty impressed. He basically slaps the Pope. The very beginning of this reign, I do like his full like rejection of the Habsburgs. Yeah. Like sending back the wife, stealing Maximilian's wife. I do love that as well. Which like is maybe not, maybe partly we can credit Anne for that once again, but it's really Charles' scandal because it's his marriage. Yeah, it is. And he's okay. and he's all for it as well. It's not like yeah. he's forced into it. He's like, yes, get rid of this one. <laughs> Give me that one. <laughs> yeah. And it's like he literally gave, like, no facts. Like, even though he knew, like, Aragon and the Habsburgs were going to be, like, on the Pope and um, Naples' side, and he's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. <laughs> He, even though he's in this, like, we're, we're getting into, like, a very modern kind of period with the Renaissance. Yeah. But he feels almost like a ruler from another time. Like, he's... Yeah. He's more... He feels more like a Carolingian, where he's like, I'm just going to yeah. do what I want. Screw this about me having to care about political relations. <laughs> and he was very inspired by, like, Charlemagne, and he wanted to emulate Charlemagne. True, true. He's reading the Song of Roland. He's like getting all this inspiration from all this yeah, like Carolingian son, literature, and he wants to emulate that, and that kind of shows through, and it causes a stir. It's a huge <laughs> stir. It's a life changing stir. That, as you said, Mussolini even mentions it. Yeah, which is hundreds of years later. So, I think that's yeah. major points. I think that makes up for the no murder. I want to give him like a seven or an eight. Wow. I think, like, I think turning multiple countries against you is pretty rare. That so far. Okay, here's here's the question: Does he get as high as Louis the Eleventh? Because you gave him an eight. Okay, no, no. They'll <laughs> knock him down. A he bit. doesn't have the Maybe murder and the skullduggery. Yeah, I think I have to go with six then. Six. Six. Six point five. No, seven. Okay. We're going to go like, seven. I was like, six is quite a dr- drastic drop. Seven, okay. We're going to go seven. I think I'll also join you at seven. He's he's not evil enough. All right, so that is uh, seven from each of us, which is a 14 for la la. There we go. Not too shabby. Which is the same as Charles the Sixth, by the way. Huh. Now we come to Lovey on Throne. It's not going to be a great round, unfortunately. Yes. Lovey on Throne. So I'll get the children out of the way. He's like one. No, none. No children. Not even the daughters? Six children oh. born. All of them died before him. Oh. 
Yeah. So sad. Then we get to the rain score. Yes. Doesn't look too hot either, unfortunately. He he was king from his father's death on the 30th of August, 1483. You know, give or take an eight-year regency. Yeah. Still counts. Um, until yeah. his own death on the 7th of April, 1498. So that's a total of 14 years, seven months, and eight days. Which is the shortest reign that we've had since King John II. The one who died on holiday in England. <laughs> Oh, yeah, sometimes. So that is Charles's reign. Oh, what's the grand total? For, oh, I have to see what, how many V on Throne points he gets. So it's a oh, 2.7 yeah. for V on Throne for that little reign. Okay. Reign. And what is um, the grand total? The grand total is... It's 42.7. That is, okay. yeah. That's um. So he's in. He's in the forties club. So he's in. He's in all right company. Um, yeah. But at this point, if you're scoring in the forties, you're probably you're definitely a, a middling kind of ruler. Yeah, he you're did not... pick up quite a few in terms of um, being scandalous and naughty. But, scandalicious. <laughs> rulership wise, I think you know he's maybe not subpar. So grand. Yeah. Now, with that said, we come to a tricky decision. Yes. Is he fascinating yes. enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, to go through to the Battle Royale Championship, and to be spared the guillotine? I wish I could give it to him, but I can't. I just... No, I don't think we just can. can't. Yeah, it's really to, unfortunate because I, just, I like him. I like him. He just him, would not survive just, a day in the tournament. He's not the <laughs> oh, yeah, he would he's die for two seconds. He'd be massacred. The Italian wars do continue on, and there are other French kings who have com- campaigns in Italy, and I think they are definitely more. They definitely have more interesting battles, I would say. Oh, nice. More like epic kind of stuff happens nice. and i'm i'm thinking of, i'm thinking of francis the first when i think of this by the way <laughs> cool. uh but uh yeah it's it's getting there but mm, it's not quite yeah. there you know yeah, yeah 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 so unfortunately i'm very sorry more. king charles the eighth yeah but uh, i think most of our listeners will agree your head has to go fitting that his head gets chopped off considering his death was to do with his head getting hit head injury guillotine you know yeah that's true nice little just finish him off might have stopped his suffering he was he was he was comatose for nine hours yeah yeah Yeah. and then he was mumbling incoherently after Mm. so that's Charles the 8th episode stay tuned next time for Anne of Brittany at this point, we have also have released Antoinette de Manuelet. And also on the Patreon, nice. we're doing The Hunchback of Notre Dame as well, which is so a film set during the reign of Louis XI. And also we'll be doing, after Anne of Brittany, we're going to be doing Louis XII. And on the Patreon, we're going to be doing Katerina Sforza as well. Yay! Special episode on her. So that's what to look forward to. Um, 
in the meantime, that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> Bye.